Okay, so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now for the matters that you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Uh, The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Uh, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Good to see you here at the EU public meeting. My name is Rowan Kemp. If you haven't met me before, I work here with the EU as I lead the staff team that serves here at the Sydney Uni campus. We're continuing this week just a little series of last week and this week on sex and relationships, looking at a couple of chapters in the Christian New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through chapter 7. Last week we looked at chapters 5 and 6 and the big message that we sort of got there from God through the Apostle Paul was pretty simple. It was addressed to Christians, people who say they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and the message was flee sexual immorality or porneia was the Greek word that Paul used, flee any sort of sexual relationship that's outside the bounds that God has established, flee porneia and instead glorify God with your body. Why were they to do that? They were to do that because of everything that God had done for them through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit. They had been washed of all their sins, they had been sanctified, set apart for God, they had been justified, made right in God's sight, blameless in God's sight, they had become a temple for God's Holy Spirit. Because of all those things, they were to flee all sorts of porneia, sexual immorality, and instead glorify God with their body. This week, we take that truth and Paul then applies it to a whole bunch of different people sitting in that Corinthian church. He applies it to the unmarried, to the engaged, to the widowed, to those who are married to, other, to a Christian, to those who are married to a non-believer. What does it look like to glorify God with your body, especially when it comes to sexual desires and passions, given all those different sort of relational status updates those people in the church had? So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think, is a wonderful example of Christian ethical reflection. Sometimes you'll see Paul refer to an actual command of God and you'll see him working with that. Sometimes he doesn't have a specific command of God to go with and so instead he'll have to reason theologically but also pastorally on what is the right way forward. And sometimes he doesn't give a command at all and he just gives some advice and he says, this is what I think but you're free to do what you like. So it's a good example of Christian ethical reflection depending on what sort of information you've got and the circumstance you're trying to understand. 
So rather than go verse by verse through this passage, which is what I've done previously when I've taught it in years gone by, I'm going to try to focus this time on the theological, the ethical and the pastoral reasoning that Paul uses because I think that will help make more sense of the details of the chapter. There's 40, 40, 40 verses there in the chapter. I can't cover them all. But if we look to the sort of the heart of Paul's reasoning, then that will help us both understand the chapter and give us some stuff that we can use actually in our different situations. Okay, so let's move straight into it. Uh, the first thing, the first sort of big ticket item I think that he, he builds up right throughout the chapter, a picture that he builds sort of as you move through the chapter, is about the nature and purpose of marriage. The nature and purpose of marriage understood Christianly, understood in light of what the living God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed through the Christian Bible. What is the nature and purpose of marriage? And if you were here last week, you'll know that the Bible always encourages us to ask those two aspects of an ethical question. What's the nature of this thing and what's its purpose under God? So I can think you can build up a little bit of a picture here in this chapter about some of the nature and purpose of marriage. So let's jump into that. Three things, I think, that he makes clear. First is this, marriage and sex. His point uh, here in the chapter, I think, is that marriage, one of the purposes of marriage is for the expression of sexual intimacy and sexual passion. Now, where do you see this in the chapter? Well, he addresses a couple of different groups, as I said, throughout the chapter, and it sort of sort of goes, he addresses the married people and then the unmarried people and the widows and then he addresses the married people again and then he comes back and addresses the unmarried people again. So that's sort of the, the, how the chapter is sort of structured. Where does he address this issue? Well, starts off with the married, right at the beginning of the chapter. Have a look there. Chapter 7, if you've got it open, it'd be really helpful or maybe look it on with the person next to you. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Paul starts, Now for the matters you wrote about... So you remember what happens, it seems Paul wrote them a letter that we don't have, zero Corinthians, we don't have that. They wrote back to him a letter that we don't have and now he's writing a letter back to them which we call 1 Corinthians and this is what we're reading now, right? So he's responding to something that they have raised and it's something that they've raised in response to something he wrote originally. Seems to be that way anyway. Now for the matters you wrote about, first of all he says, he quotes them, it is good for a man not to marry. Well, that's what my version says, but then when I look down at the footnote there, it says, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, that's a bit different to marriage. Sexual relations is a bit of category. And actually, the, what he says in the original is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So go on, reach out, touch, touch the woman next to you. No, <laughs> don't do it. Is that what he's meaning? Don't, don't touch a woman? What? No. If you, you know, the scholars who go back and they read sort of all the other literature from the era in which this letter was written, they've, they've, they've worked out that to touch a woman was a euphemism, a euphemism for a particular sort of sexual activity. The particular sort of sexual activity was, it was sex for pleasure, sex driven by passion and desire. That, the Corinthian Christians, for some reason, are writing to Paul saying, it's good for a man not to sort of really go for sex, you know, really, really be on for it sort of passionately with a woman, right? That's, it's good not to do that. Why would they say that? Why would they think that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, in the culture, the sort of secular Corinthian culture of the day, 
The reason you got married was not for sex. The reason you got married was for status or to have kids because you want someone to inherit your stuff, right? So you get married so that you can, for, for status and so you can have a legal heir. That's why you got married. Well, what do you do for, with all your sexual desires and you, you want to have sex? What do you do? Oh, well, that's, that's why you go and see a prostitute or that's why you have slaves. That's where you got sexual pleasure. Marriage wasn't, wasn't thought about for that. Right? So that's what's going on in their culture. Right? Paul writes to them, we know from earlier on in chapter 5, that in his first letter he wrote to them and said, do not associate with anyone who's engaged in porneia, sexual immorality. Don't associate with anyone who's engaged in that. Porneia is out for Christians. And so they're going, right, okay, well, I mean, where you go for sexual pleasure is to your prostitute or slave or whatever, and he's saying no sex outside marriage. So, okay, so it's, it's good for a guy not to sort of express himself sex, sexually, you know, for pleasure. That's a good thing, right, Paul? And Paul's going, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Paul, what Paul says is, no, no, the place to express your sexual desires is in marriage. And they're sort of going... Oh, that's wow! That's so countercultural. That's and it was. That was a really different way. Right, marriage is for that. Right, okay, right. You can see here what he says, verse two. He says, "But since there is so much pornea, so much immorality, each man should have his own wife. That is, have sexually, and each woman have her own husband. Have sexually." So it's about that each should actually have sexually have sexual relationships with the person you're married to. And that's about having, but then he talks about not just having, but giving, verses 3 to 5. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife. That is, your wife wants to have sex, she, she, she wants to you know, express herself sexually, that's you, buddy, you're her husband. Make yourself available for that. Don't, don't make her go off and find someone else. Right? The husband is to, should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and then it's reciprocated. Likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You, uh, the picture here, the picture here is of a radical, a radical one fleshness, a oneness that comes about in a Christian understanding of marriage. In chapter six, uh, Paul had already quoted uh, Genesis, where it says, talking about Adam and Eve, the two shall become one flesh. That is one kin, one family, one new unit under God. It's not just talking about mere physically; it's talking about emotionally. It's talking about relationally. As a family, you, you become one. So, I've been married to Jenny for 19 and a half years. Um, we are one. I mean, she's not here, I'm here. But we are one in the sense that we are one family. We are united, not just sexually, we are united and intertwined emotionally and relationally in ways that I can't even express to you but is the fruit of 19 and a half years of marriage. 
if I lost Jenny under God, it, it would be like losing half of my body. So entwined are we emotionally, relationally, which is given expression sexually. There is a radical one fleshness that is at the heart of the Christian understanding of marriage. And there are all sorts of things that flow from that. One is the radical mutuality of sex. Note this passage was incredibly countercultural for its time. It was a very patriarchal society in which it was written. Right? So to say the wife's body belongs to the husband may not have raised too many eyebrows. But to say that the husband's body belongs to the wife, you serious? Is a radical mutuality. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. Who's the boss here? Mutual consent. There is a radical mutuality that comes out of the radical one fleshness in how sex works. But there is also, that flows out of that, a radical serving of the other. When you become united to the other person in one flesh, they are, it is as if, the Bible says, they are, they are part of your body. So you love them like you love yourself, which means that you serve them as you would serve yourself. So, so here, this radical mutuality where Jenny's body belongs to me and my body belongs to Jenny, there is a terrible way that Christians misuse that passage, that verse where Christian husbands often say to their wife, their Christian wife, your body, the Bible says, your body belongs to me and I want to have sex. So, do you see how that... What Paul's talking about here is a radical giving, not a radical demanding. That's not Christian at all. That's not Christ-like at all. There is no grounds here for demand. The only grounds here is to give. A radical other person-centredness that comes out of the radical oneness that at the heart of marriage. Okay, so he starts off by talking to the married people uh, and talking about marriage and sex, but marriage and sex also comes up when he starts talking to the unmarried people in the very next couple of verses, verses 8 and 9. Let's read what he says there. He says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, Paul may have been married in the past, but he may, may have been widowed or something, but now he's, um, now he's clearly unmarried. Then he says, verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So clearly Paul's preference is for people to remain single. That's his preference, his advice to Christians, remain single. And we're going to get to some reasons why he says that. But he says here clearly, if, if temptation is a big problem... If pornea is a real danger for you, if sexual immorality is a real danger for you, if you burn with the sexual passion, that just means you are thoroughly sort of distracted all the time and it's just constantly in your mind and you just can't sort of make your bed in the morning because you're just too... If it is just dominating your life, he says, you know what, I think it's better to remain single, for reasons we'll get to, but if that's you, then it's better to marry than to burn in that sort of way. So he's making the same sort of point as we just saw, but in reverse, if you like. Marriage is the place for the expression of sexual passions and sexual intimacy. And if you can't get hold of that desire, then, in brackets, if you have the opportunity, then he says, well, it's probably for you better to marry. Now, notice here, just go back a little bit, he says here uh, in verse 7 and 8, he says, 
verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, I assume that means not married, he says, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So that, that little verse there has been used often by people say, oh, see, there's a gift, some sort of gift of God of singleness that, that maybe you get blessed with by God, some blessing, people say. You know, blessed with singleness and that's a gift. I don't think that's actually what Paul's saying. I don't think he's saying singleness is a gift. I don't think he's even saying celibacy is a gift, being able to not have sex is a gift. No, because all sorts of people need to not engage in pornea. Everybody needs to not engage in pornea. Even married people need to not engage in pornea. Anyone who's single, whether it's sort of early on in life or whether it's later in life. I have a, I have a relation whose uh, husband died um, 20 years ago. So she's been 20 years um, unmarried, right? She has to live a celibate life. That's just how it is. All sorts of people need to live a single life. I don't think Paul's saying, do you have the gift of celibacy or not? That's not what he's saying. I think he's saying the gift that he has from God is being able to hold it in check and let it not so dominate his life, the fact that he's unmarried, that he's actually able to get on and do a lot of things for Jesus. In that way, the gift is actually a gift for the church because he's able to do so much, so many other things for the Lord Jesus. It's a gift to the church, which is how he talks about gifts usually in 1 Corinthians. Okay, so that's just sort of thinking a little bit about this, marriage and sex. It's worth just throwing in a bit of a pastoral comment though at this point to you guys. Paul is saying here, look, if you're, if you're burning with passion and you know, you're finding it hard to control yourself, then you know, better to marry. Well, what about if you don't have that opportunity? What about if you just don't have that opportunity to get married? What happens then? What, what are you meant to do about that? Well, three quick things just to say. First is this. If you're a Christian person and you're not married and you feel plenty of sexual desires, it is not beyond you to live a holy life for God. It's not. And here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which I think I mentioned last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says... God never tests us beyond what we can bear but whenever we are tested he provides a way out from under that testing. You are never going to be left in a situation high and dry by the Lord God where you are not able to live a holy life for him. It's just not going to happen. He won't put you in that sort of place. So if you go, well, I'm finding it pretty hard to live as a single person, know that God says this is not beyond you. I love you and this is not beyond you to live a holy life for me. And also, then secondly, God enables you to live a holy life by his spirit that's now living within you. The spirit helps you to walk in holiness before him. I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but actually it will enable you in any and every situation to live in a holy way if you choose to follow the spirit's leading. But thirdly, being unmarried must not be a recipe for loneliness if you're a Christian. Being unmarried must not be a recipe for loneliness if you are a Christian because you're part of the new family of God. You're, you're, you've got hundreds of sisters and brothers in Christ and so your relational and your emotional needs need to be met through the Christian family and that's a word to all of us that we need to embrace our brothers and sisters in whatever their marital status and seek to make sure that their emotional and relational needs are being fulfilled. And we might say a bit more about that as we go on. Okay, so that's the longest thing, marriage and sex. 
Uh, secondly, Paul moves on, the nature and purpose of marriage, marriage and permanence. Now, this flows out of the radical one fleshness that we've already talked about of marriage, namely that marriage is designed by God for life. It's a permanent relationship ended only by death. So when you form one flesh, one new kin, one new family, it's, it's God's intention is not that that be then ripped apart and another one formed. God's intention is not that another one... That's not God's intention. It happens sometimes... Well, it happens all the time, tragically, by death. That that one kin relationship is ended by death. However... Paul addresses two particular groups here and he emphasises the permanence of the marriage relationship until death parts it. Uh, the two groups he addresses, first of all, he addresses some Christian couples in verses 10 to 11. Let's have a look at that. Some Christian couples, verses 10 to 11. To the married I give this command, he says. And notice he says, not I, but the Lord, right? He's, he's saying this comes from a teaching of the Lord Jesus, which we'll get to in a second. He says, a wife must not separate from her husband... But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Again, notice the mutuality here. It's addressed equally to both. And the, the force, I mean, he says, don't separate. The idea is that you stay together. However, if you do separate, notice what he's really warning against. He's saying, don't go and marry someone else. Don't go and marry someone else. The idea is you stay separated or you come back together. You'll be reconciled. Now, where does he draw this from the Lord's command? Um, I think you can jot it down and you can look it up later. Uh, one place you go is Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Matthew 5, 32. And alongside that, put Matthew 19, verse 9. So Matthew 5, 32 and Matthew 19, verse 9. There's Jesus teaching there about divorce and what divorce does to a marriage relationship and in particular how when somebody remarries, Jesus, quite confrontingly, calls that adultery. Why would, you, why would a remarriage be adultery if there's been a divorce? Why would, why would it be adultery? It's because I think in Jesus' mind, marriage is meant to be for life. Marriage is meant to be permanent. That's why a remarriage, he equates to divorce. Now, that's a fairly contentious reading of what Jesus teaches. There'd be lots of, lot, there's lots of other evangelical Christians who would take a different view to me on that particular one. So I'm just being honest with you. So, and some would say, that's a, I've read that too hard, a too harsh reading. I'm ha- very happy to engage uh, respectfully and gently and humbly uh, with you over discussing that further, if you like. But that seems to me to be what he's saying and that's why Paul picks it up, I think. So I think what Paul's saying here is remarriage is off the cards because of the permanent one-fleshness of marriage However, he he acknowledged that it might be necessary sometimes to separate and pastorally that is very important to realise that sometimes it's necessary for even a Christian couple to separate, not to get remarried but in order to either hopefully work towards reconciliation but if that's not possible then they stay separated. Why is that important? Because I tell you what, terrible, terrible things sometimes happen in marriages including in Christian marriages. When there's abuse, and that's not just violence sometimes, like it can be emotional violence, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Sometimes when there's um, radical neglect. Those sort of situations call for um, 
tough love. I mean tough not just by being tough, I mean it's, it's, it's tough to love in those sort of situations. And Paul, I think, is acknowledging here, if, if you're in a situation where you're being uh, beaten up, you're being abused by the person you're married to, you, you, you don't have to stay there, you don't have to stay in that same house. You might separate and that might be necessary to draw to the, the, your husband or wife's attention that this is not how we love one another, this is not actually the right way to live. The, it's a, a tough form of love that is trying, though, to work towards reconciliation. And I just wonder whether in the Christian community we need less divorce but more separation. I'm not saying that you should, as soon as you know, your husband leaves the toilet seat up, you sort of go, right, that's it! <laughs> I'm not being stupid about it. I'm saying that there are terrible situations that happen behind closed doors. And we as a community, a Christian community, need to care about that and support people in that and see that they work to a genuine reconciliation and repentance. And maybe this is part of the way we can do that. Okay, well, as I say, this is addressed though to Christian couples who have not yet remarried. It tells them to work for reconciliation, right? What about a Christian who's already remarried? Well, that situation is just not, not addressed here. It's just not addressed in this chapter at all. And frankly, it's not really addressed much elsewhere in the Bible either. Um, so what we have to do there is we have to think hard about using biblical principles. What does the Bible make clear? And I'll tell you one thing the Bible makes clear is that there, there is always forgiveness whenever we make a mistake. There's always forgiveness. There's, there's, there's no sin that you can commit in this sort of realm that we're talking about that puts you beyond Jesus' forgiveness and grace. So make sure that whatever we do there, we're availing ourselves of the Lord's forgiveness if we think we've done something that we shouldn't have. But the second thing is, we have to work out a Christian retrieval ethic. That is, if someone has remarried, you can't just sort of pretend that hasn't happened and sort of just go back to the... You can't do that. You have to sort of work out some sort of retrieval ethic and retrieval ethics never get you back to the ideal... And they're always very hard and complicated. So let's not pretend that these sort of situations are really easy to know what to do. Let's not, let's not be harsh or dogmatic about it because we're all trying to understand how God would have us live and there's going to be a difference of opinion possibly on it. And let's make sure we tread lightly and humbly and gently as we deal with complicated life situations. Okay, so he addresses the Christian couples... But then he also addresses the situation where there's a Christian married to a non-Christian. You can see this in verses 12 to 16, still coming under marriage and permanence. There are big concern here in uh, verses 12 to 16 for a Christian who's married to a non-Christian. Their big concern was that somehow staying married to a non-believer was somehow making them as a Christian unclean in God's sight. Why would they think that? Well, what had Paul written? He'd said, don't associate with anyone who's into porneia, who's into sexual immorality. If I'm married to a non-believer, a non-Christian, and the culture of the place is where do you get your sexual kicks, where do you get your, express your sexual passion, not with your marriage partner, you go and express it with a prostitute or your slave or someone else. That's, that's presumably what they're going to do, the person I'm married to. 
don't associate with someone who's engaged in porneia. I sleep with somebody in the same house every night who's engaged in sexual porneia. Should I, should, I, should I leave them? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And that's why Paul has to give his clear advice here. To the rest, I say this, I, he says, not the Lord, that is, I don't have a command of Jesus, I'm just trying to apply these truths into a new ethical situation. He says, if a brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Why? Because of the radical one fleshness of marriage. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. That he's saying, your unbelieving husband or wife does not defile you. There's a, in the Old Testament, the way it was, was if, if, um, if this was a clean phone, but this was an unclean piece of paper, if the clean comes in contact with the unclean, then the clean becomes unclean. So they're thinking, right, I'm, I'm washed, I'm sanctified in Jesus Christ, but my, my husband or wife is not. Am I sort of defiled by that sort of association? And he's saying, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. The fact that you are married, the fact that you are one flesh, means that they are clean. They are clean for you, they are, they, as, as are your children, he says. So there's no sort of defilement going. You don't need to be worried about any of that. Are they saved? Are they sort of sanctified in Jesus? Are they, are they, are they, no, they're not saved. In fact, Paul goes on and talks, actually, in verses 15 and 16, hoping that they might become a Christian. So they're clearly not saved, they're, they're not Christians. However, he says... There is no, there's no problem for your standing with God by remaining in that marriage. In fact, if they're happy to stay in the marriage, then that's what you should do. And by doing so, you may actually win them for Jesus. You may actually win them for Jesus. Um, this, um, just, just a pastoral word here, right? That is a very tricky situation in which to live when you're married to someone who doesn't love Jesus. That is a very tricky situation in which to live. It's, it's not ideal. It's not ideal for you. Um, and I think that's why Paul gives the advice at the very end of the chapter in verses 39 and 40 to the widows, people who, who are no longer married, he says they're free to marry if they want but they should do so only in the Lord. That is, they should, marry, they should really just marry Christians because that's going to be much better for you. Why do you want to share life with somebody when you can't share the source of your life with that person? When you can't share your love of Jesus with that person? very wise piece of advice I once gave me was to Christians, that is, you, you should, who should you seek to marry? Seek to marry somebody who loves Jesus more than they'll love you. And you go, oh no, I want them to love me, I want them to make me their little God. No, no, no. You want them to love Jesus more than they love you. And you ought to love Jesus more than you love them. I mean, love them, yes, but have all that flowing out of your love for Jesus. Is a very, very, I would say, a very unwise, foolish thing to marry someone who's not a believer. You are deliberately choosing a very, very hard road. What happens when you have kids? Will they be brought up to know the Lord? And if that's true, if there's wisdom in that, which I believe is right, why date someone who's not a believer? Why go down that track? Why entwine, you start to entwine yourself emotionally and relationally with somebody who, who doesn't love Jesus? 
Because I tell you, it's going to, if, if they don't become a Christian, you are going to find it really hard to pull out. And many don't. And then one day, many walk away from Jesus. So, anyway, some pastoral thoughts there. You might want to take that up in question time. Let's keep moving. The third thing he says about marriage is this, marriage and care or concern. And you're getting this from verses 26 and 28. Again, this flows out of the radical oneness of marriage. You can see what he says in verses 26 and 28. He says, Now about virgins, that is people who have not yet been married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgement as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He says, Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek for a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. Right, he thinks, Paul thinks it's better for people to remain single as they are because of the present crisis. What's the present crisis? Well, the scholars all sort of argue about it. I think probably the present crisis was actually a crisis in the present at the time some sort of present crisis that was actually making life hard. Um, there's some good candidates for that. We know in for, you know, the mid-40 ADs that there was a big famine that sort of swept around that part of the Mediterranean. So it went on for quite a few years. So there was a massive sort of shortage of food. And you know, in that sort of crisis, if I'm just looking after myself and there's not much food, well, you know, I, that's hard and I'll look after me. If I've got to look after Jenny and our tribe of five children and there's no food, my stress levels, my anxiety levels, my level of responsibility, it is through the roof compared to just looking after me, right? In a a time of some sort of present crisis, your troubles are magnified when you get married. And I think Paul's saying, look, in view of what's going on at the present, we don't know what that was particularly, but he's saying, you know, I think it's better to remain as you are. Why? Because if you get married, it's not a sin, he says, but if you get married you have a commitment to care for that person and that, is, that commitment is going to mean extra work for you. In the current situation, there's going to be extra work for you and that's going to be hard. So underlying that, there is this, this idea that actually when you're married, you are meant to take like, it's radical service. You have to care about the other person more than about yourself. So if you're hoping to get married just so you can have lots of sex, let me just tell you, marriage is only for those who are ready to give up their life, including even give up their desire for sex. Or not their desire, but give up having sex. Because how do you know what your marriage will be like? I know of a guy who, for various medical reasons, some years into their marriage, has, they have never been able to have sex again. They're married, they sleep in the same bed, but they can't have sex. If you just think marriage is just so I can have lots of sex, I say you, you, have no, you have no idea and please grow up and please don't marry somebody because you, you will be a curse to them. Marriage is about radical service. Loving someone else above yourself. That is only the call for the mature. And it's only possible when you really, really love Jesus, I think, and you understand his radical love of us. You might want to take that up with me more as well. Okay, I'm going to power on uh, in the last couple of minutes here. So he talks a whole lot about the nature and purpose of marriage, but that's not all he does in this chapter. He draws attention to a few other key things as well. Three things, and I'm going to finish with these. 
First of all, he draws attention to our gospel identity. You can see this in verses 17 to 24. Verses 17 to 24. Um, Let me just read what he says there. He says, Nevertheless, he says, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. That he's saying here's the basic principle is that how were you when you became a Christian? Then stay, stay as you were. Were you married? Stay married. Were you single? Stay single. Just, that's the basic principle. You don't need to change. You might want to change, you can change, but you don't need to. That's his point. You don't need to change. Because when you become a Christian, you no longer have to play the world's game. I'm not talking about soccer, right? The, wor- the world's game is, about, is all about seeking my identity in achievement, in stuff, in status. So I need to, be, I need to get married to be satisfied or I need to be free of this woman or this man to be satisfied, or I need to no longer be a slave so I can become a free person. He's saying, no, no, when you become a Christian, you are set free from all of that striving because the Gospel cuts across all worldly status and situations and it grounds us in a new identity in Jesus, which means you don't have to play that game anymore. So he's really saying no matter whether you are married or single, it matters not now when it comes to your identity in Jesus. Get that right. And you can see there he says three times, verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, so you can stay as you are. He illustrates it with respect to circumcision and whether you're a slave or a master. He says it applies to circumcision. Were you circumcised? You don't need to become uncircumcised. Not quite sure how you do that, but if you're uncircumcised, you don't need to become circumcised. And then he he says an incredible thing for someone who was a Jew. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping commands of God is what counts. It's because when you become a Christian, your new identity in Jesus radically cuts across the circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew, Gentile divide. Similarly, he says, if you're a slave, you don't need to seek your freedom, though if if you're offered it, if you can get it, great, take it, because that's going to be useful for the kingdom of God. But you don't need to stop being a slave because actually because you're in Christ you are free. And if you're a master, you're actually Christ's slave. The gospel identity radically cuts across all striving. How does that apply for us? Sex is not going to be your saviour. Your radical identity in Jesus means that you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to drive for sex to be your saviour. Relationships will not be your redemption. It means that marriage is not going to be your Messiah because you are in Jesus. Your identity is secured in him. You have been washed, sanctified, justified. You are a temple of the God's Holy Spirit. This is who you are, sister, brother in Christ. That's who you are and that frees you from having to play the world's game. If you want to get married, then you're free, Paul says, but you don't have to do it because your identity is secure. Gospel identity, gospel timing... Verses 29 to 31, he just says, time is short. He basically says there, the world is soon passing away, this world, and consequently we hold lightly to things. We hold lightly to the things in this world. Have a look what he says there, verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. So I read that verse and I've decided, actually, I'm not going to go home tonight. 
I'm just going to kick back, play lots of video games, just you know, hang out with my mates and you know, I'm going to live like I have none because the time is short. Is that what he's saying? No! The whole chapter has been about marriage creates a oneness that means I have to live in radical service right, of Jenny. So that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is we hang lightly even to the lovely things of this world. Those who have wives live as if they have none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world and its present form is passing away. We know there is a greater new creation to come. That is what we are living for. That is our hope and that means that we can sit lightly with the things of this world. We are not going to get obsessed with them. We are not going to be engrossed in them. Even though we will be responsible with them even though we will steward the good things God has given us for his glory. Gospel identity, gospel timing and finally gospel devotion. Paul just says here in verses 32 to 35 that the goal, all of our goals as Christians should be to live unhindered, in unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus. And this is, this is an argument for the single life. This is an argument to stay not married. Paul doesn't say you have to do it. He says if there's lots of good reasons to get married... If, you, if you know, pornea is going to be a problem for you, um, then you're free to marry. But here is what commends a single life. You can live in unhindered devotion to Jesus. The reality is that you can do a lot less for Jesus if you choose to get married. And one of the worst things out there is people who, who think they can have, have it all. They think they can have marriage and do everything they want to do for Jesus. That's terrible because you end up neglecting your family and you don't show them the commitment of Christ. If you choose to get married, you will do less for Jesus. That's not bad. That's not a sin. That's just a choice and you're free to make that choice. It's not bad. It's not a sin. It's just a choice. That's why Paul says, I wish that everyone could do it like me, but not everyone can. So if you can't, and you have the opportunity, sure, get married. But if you're not married, the reality is you have a lot more opportunity to do things for Jesus. And if you're currently not married, maybe you could think about how you might leverage that fact for Jesus at the moment. How might you use the fact that you are not married at the moment to live in unhindered devotion to him? And of course, eschatologically, when we think about the, the new creation to come, what do we know? We know that we are all going to be single. In the new creation, there is no marriage. We're all married, as the church, to Jesus, if you like, but there's no, no human marriage. We're all single, that's what Jesus said. There's no marriage or give, being given in marriage in the new creation. And, and you know what's good about that? We all can live in unhindered devotion to Jesus. That's what we've been created for. That's what we've been recreated for in Jesus. And if you're living the single life now, you know what you're doing? You are a little window into the new creation as you live in unhindered devotion to Jesus.